Well, we are in the midst of a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians, which we've called Church Challenges, and we are addressing six church challenges that we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, which are present in many, if not all, of Christ's churches from time to time and in varying degrees and ways. We've already looked at the first challenge, which is the challenge of division, and we spent three sermons talking about that particular challenge in the church. We began last week talking about the second challenge, which is the challenge of immorality, and we're going to deal with that again this week and next week. And as we saw last week, there's one form of immorality that is, was not addre- being addressed um, in the church at Corinth, which Paul called upon them to address by exercising church discipline on the man who was committing incest with his stepmother. Last week, we began that second challenge on immorality, and we after looking at church discipline, we might think Paul has completely shifted focus. He's not talking about immorality anymore. But as we'll see this morning, he is continuing to talk about immorality, albeit in a different form. Because I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about immorality. Um, I'm sure for many of us, the first thing that comes to our mind is often of a sexual nature. But immorality is much, much wider and broader than just that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, the passage that we preached on last week, he addresses immorality in a broader form. So I want to set up this sermon before we get into the text this morning by giving you three reasons why a talk on legal disputes among believers at the beginning of chapter 6 is not all that different or unique from what he had already been previously discussing. First of all, as we saw last week and as we'll see again this week, there are many forms that immorality takes. It can certainly be of a sexual nature, but it also extends beyond that. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, 9 through, or 5, 9 through 11, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. So he puts that under the banner of immorality as well. He does the same Again, in chapter 6, in the verses that Dave read for us, verses 9 and 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So immorality includes more than just sexual immorality. Secondly, a second reason as we will see this week, is that this is yet another area of concern for Paul where the inappropriate behavior of Christians is negatively impacting their witness in Corinth. Just as their failure to discipline the unrepentant man who was living in sexual immorality was having a bad witness in the community, so they're taking each other to court and suing each other over petty grievances was also giving the church a bad name in the community, and hence Christ and his gospel a bad name in Corinth. And then thirdly and finally, a final reason I think that Paul's talking about this particular issue is that he has just been speaking to them about failure to exercise godly judgment as a congregation. Remember last week, they had failed to judge the unrighteous man in the congregation. And our text this morning gives yet another example of the ways in which the Corinthians are failing to exercise godly judgment, only this time it is through suing each other in secular courts, again showing the disregard they have for the name of Christ 
and for the witness of the church to the outside world. As Paul Barnett, a commentator on 1 Corinthians says, near the end of his teaching on disciplining the immoral man in chapter 5, he introduced the idea of judging. We who are in the church do not judge those outside. Paul uses those words as a bridge into his present apparent digression on the need for those who are within the church to judge one another and not go outside to the wider community for the adjudication of cases between believers. Just as those who are within the church are to judge the immoral man, so too those who are within the church are to judge one another where matters of litigation arise between members. So that's the idea of why he's particularly addressing this. Remember that when the Holy Spirit inspires a letter, he does it in such a way that he is superintending all that Paul is thinking and writing, but not in a way that violates anything that Paul wants to write. So as this thought comes to his mind, as he's been talking about the need to judge those inside the church and not judge those outside the church, his mind goes to, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, wait, here's another way this church is failing to judge those inside the church correctly. That is, they are taking issues they should be resolving within outside of the church. So let me be clear on the front end, lest anyone misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. To be clear, the apostle does not have in view here criminal matters. He doesn't have view in matters that are of a criminal nature. Some believers have no doubt read this text as if there were never an appropriate time for believers to pursue public justice in a dispute with a professing believer. That is not the issue here. This is not a call by the Apostle Paul to keep everything in-house in a church. Where crimes are committed, the court must be involved. Because these matters of crimes are by God's command and provision not falling within the sphere of the church, but rather within the sphere of both the church and the state. The church has not been authorized to deal with legal violations nor commanded to cover up crimes. You talk about you want to blaspheme the name of God and put the church witness at stake, do things like that, and we've seen it in our own day as abuse and things like that have been covered up and it's been a black eye on the face of the church. So if a believer has committed an actual crime, child abuse, livelihood-destroying slander, murder, so forth. That's an extreme example, no doubt. But the proper remedy is the justice system. When churches use this text to cover up criminality, that church is committing a crime. Sinning against God and that kind of response should demand both from God's people and the secular authorities appropriate punishment that fits the crime for those who committed them and those responsible for covering them up. And that may mean excommunication from the church, and it may also mean time in prison. So what is the form of immorality that Paul's addressing here then? To be clear, he says it four different ways to make it very clear the issue he deals with. In verse 1, he calls it grievances. Grievances. And then he also uses the word in verse 2, trivial cases. Trivial cases. He also says in verse 3, matters pertaining to this life, everyday things. And then in verse 6, he uses the word, or sorry, verse 5, he uses the word dispute. So grievances, trivial cases, matters pertaining to everyday life, and disputes. 
These were the things that Paul is talking about, and these are the things that believers were wrong to go to court over. They were taking these issues into the unbelieving world, into Roman law courts. The text does not identify the grievances that were occurring, but clearly they were minor issues. Paul calls them trivial cases. They were matters concerning temporal things, and they were issues that believers should have been able to resolve themselves without recourse to the courts. So Paul has in view here those who of their own accord bring their brother or sister in Christ into secular courts over petty concerns, as one writer says, to harass them, as it were, through means of unbelievers while it was in their power to employ more godly remedies. Sometimes the godly remedy is to involve secular authorities where crimes have been committed, but regarding petty concerns, grievances, trivial cases, matters pertaining to this life, and little disputes, the godly remedy is to deal with it within the church community itself, not outside of the church community. So the root issue here that we're dealing with this morning is relational strife in the congregation. Not division, but the relational strife that can often lead to division. The relational strife that is kindled in the hearts of believers by some wrong, either perceived or actual, done to them, for which a believer has a desire for vindication and retribution and remuneration and justice. So I want you to see something. Christians in the local church sin against each other. Right? That is right on the surface of the text. Relational strife is to be expected in the life of a congregation. The wrong being done by one believer to another believer, whether that wrong is actual or perceived, is a reality. The desire for vindication and retribution, remuneration and justice is a response, albeit a natural response in some ways. He's not rebuking them for having disputes. He knows to do that, like he said last week, you'd have to go out of the world. <laughs> Just like you'd have to go out of the world to escape sexual immorality, you'd have to go out of the world to escape relational strife. He's not rebuking them for having grievances. He's rebuking them for the way they're dealing with them. We can respond to disputes in moral, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, church-strengthening, other-oriented, and witness-protecting ways. Or we can respond to strife and grievances in immoral God-dishonoring, Christ-neglecting, self-serving, church-weakening, and witness-tarnishing ways. So which way will it be for you, for me? Let's look at the options in front of us this morning as we weigh how we're going to respond when the grievances happen, when the disputes hot happen, when the matters pertaining to this life happen, when the trivial cases happen. When the desire for vindication comes, when the wrong is done, how will we respond? Will we respond by relating redemptively? Or are we going to extract a pound of flesh because we're living in the flesh? Paul holds up the four perspectives we need in this passage in verse Corinthians 6, 1 to 11, so that we respond redemptively. First, let's make sure we are responding to relational wrongs 
morally and not immorally by weighing four considerations. First of all, which matters more, the temporary present or the eternal future? The temporary present or the eternal future? Paul says that one of the reasons they're so adamant about solving their disputes in this way by appealing to the secular courts is because they are more concerned with what they can get in the temporary present than what they will have in the, in the eternal future. Their focus seems to be entirely on matters pertaining to this life rather than what is true of them in Christ now and will be true of them in eternity. And part of this is understand, understandable because a large percentage of the, pop, of the congregation in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15 didn't even believe in the resurrection to begin with. So they better get it all in right now. Their thinking was way out of whack. But in eternity, Paul says two things are going to be true of us as believers. Verse 2, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then in verse 3, he says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, presumably, this judgment would be fallen angels because holy angels don't need to be judged. This could be referring to Jude 6, where Jude writes, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, which we will participate in. Second Peter 2, 4, and 9, Peter tells us, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under the, uh, until the judgment, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So scripture does not indicate in what way or what role we will have in judging and reigning over creation, but that we will. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, that's us believers, will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a judgeship that is given to us as those who will co-reign with Christ. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So the argument that Paul gives here is from the greater to the lesser. He says, saints of Corinth, and he says, he would say, saints of heritage, you will one day in the new creation serve as co-heirs of all things with Jesus Christ, Therefore, you should be able to solve trivial disputes that crop up among you now. You are going to be on the capital S Supreme Court of the universe as a new creation in Christ. Can you not deal with relational issues now? I mean, to qualify for the Supreme Court of the United States, you have to have a track record of good judgment, don't you? I mean, they're looking at the history of how you've weighed cases, evaluated cases, whether you've employed statutes and laws appropriately. We are going to judge higher and more at, with more at stake than any earthly court will ever do because all they can pronounce is judgments pertaining to this life. We'll pronounce judgments containing, pertaining to eternity. And Paul says, can you not then deal with issues now? You're going to judge angels. You should be able to decide lesser disputes over matters of ordinary life. If at the last day we will render verdicts on fallen angels, surely 
we can say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me now? We can settle minor issues among ourselves today instead of bringing them before an unbelieving world, which we will participate in judging one day. We're asking for their judgment on our life when we will judge their life later. doesn't make any sense. If we will judge matters pertaining to the next life, which is what Paul is calling us to do, we should be competent to judge matters pertaining to this life. When we direct our gaze to our eternal future, which is what Paul is doing here, it puts our minor squabbles in appropriate perspective, doesn't it? When we care more about what and where we will be 10,000 years from now than what and where we will be 10 minutes from now, 10 days from now, 10 weeks from now, or 10 years from now, our problems begin to shrink down to their appropriate size. Herschel York says, the recourse to civil courts of this world revealed that they did not appreciate all that they have and are in Christ. They were not living in the present with a view of the richness of their future. Contemporary disputes by believers should be easily solved by those who will rule and reign with Christ. <laughs> Colossians 3, 1 to 5, Paul says, If then you have been seated with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, you see, what he, see his logic there? As with so many other matters, brothers and sisters, an eternal perspective serves us so, so well. Do you not know, HBC, that you will one day stand side by side in beautiful harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ, ruling and reigning over the new earth with King Jesus. Do you not realize that you are brothers and sisters in this eternal family, chosen by him before the foundation of the world, washed, sanctified, justified, awaiting his return to consummate all things? So often we give all of our grievances 90% of our attention and eternity less than 10%. And that's why we feel our grievances so deeply. Because we don't have our priorities straight. We don't have our hearts anchored in what is eternal. How often during a given day do you purposely set your mind on things above where Christ is? It's only then and there that we're able to put to death what's earthly in us. Like all this stuff, this desire to deal with petty grievances this way. Heavenly mindedness really does bring about a whole lot of earthly good, doesn't it? So that's point number one, which matters more, the temporary present or the eternal future? I hope you will choose the eternal future. Second, which matters more, my vindication or God's reputation? Which matters more, my vindication or God's reputation? Paul says in verse 4, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And then he says it again in verse 6, But brother goes to law against brother, which is a sister against sister as well, and that before unbelievers. Paul's main concern is what these disputes and the way they are handling are communicating to unbelievers about God and what they're communicating to unbelievers about the church. His concern is chiefly, as it was last week, with the public witness of the church. The apostle does not want believers to bring their relatively insignificant, easily solved disagreements before unbelievers. That's because if believers cannot settle minor matters among themselves, that encourages the world 
to question the ability of the gospel to settle larger issues such as man's reconciliation to God. We must consider how our actions reflect or don't reflect on the implications and power of the gospel. The unbelieving world, can you imagine two Christians fighting in front of a judge? And this unbelieving judge had some association with the church early in his life. And he's not believing now because of all the hypocrisy he saw and the lack of the power of the gospel present and even people to get along and all that stuff. And he says, see, just another reason I'm not a Christian. Right there. Just another reason I I think all this is complete myth. It can't even change them to get along. They're talking to me about resurrection from the dead. I'll believe it when you get along. I'll believe the resurrection when you show me that it actually matters to you enough to crucify your flesh to get along. I mean, that's what Paul's concerned about. Why would anyone believe our gospel can save them from sin if it can't even save us from ours? Brothers and sisters, we do not want to bring our petty disputes, which can so easily misrepresent the good news of Christ, to unbelievers. We want to bring them to the gospel. How it must sadden the heart of Christ when he sees his people, those whom he loves and died for, sinning to get something from someone else in the family of faith. What does that communicate to unbelievers about the value of Christ and the power of the gospel? We want unbelievers to see in us the hope for a life focused on way more important things than what we gain in an earthly courtroom. And if that means our reputation suffers so that the gospel's power might be demonstrated, so be it. Because to be a Christian is to care far more about God's name than our name. God's cause than our cause. God's righteousness than our rightness. And God's glory than our grievance. Notice in verse 5, he tells them how they ought to handle it instead. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? He wants them to handle it internally among brothers as family. We should be willing to give extra time as brothers and sisters in the church to help each other resolve conflict between brothers and sisters in the church. It's better for our primary mission that we keep this kind of work inside the church. All of us need to do this, helping each other with disputes in our marriages and families and among friends. And this kind of judging is part of the work of the church for the sake of our witness to outsiders. Now, Paul's given them a little bit of a loving jab in verse 5 by saying, You Corinthians, you're so wise. You've talked about how you're so wise. You've got the best teachers. They're awesome, and you're so filled with the Spirit, and you just understand all mysteries and everything. And look at you, acting like kids in front of a judge. Paul's point is that these Corinthian Christians can't even adjudicate small relational matters among themselves, but have to go to secular law courts to solve petty grievances. And he just says, how wise is that? How does that, how does that demonstrate wisdom? It doesn't demonstrate a wise sage. It demonstrates an angry kid. How immature is that? What profound lack of wisdom, Corinthians, does this behavior demonstrate? The reality is that the poorest equipped believer who is filled with the Spirit of God and understands God, God's Word, even at its most basic level, is more competent to settle disagreements between believers than the most highly trained, experienced, unbelieving judge in a secular court. 
he asked them, is there no one wise enough to settle this? By asking if there's no one able to settle this who's wise enough, Paul shows them that yet again, they're not as wise as they think they are. See, because wisdom is not just measured by what do I know. Wisdom is measured by how do you relate. Truly wise people are gracious people. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know if you treat people like dirt. You're just doubling down on hell. The gospel changes us from the inside out so that we become a kinder, gentler, reasonable kind of person. But they're not equating wisdom that way. They think of wisdom as who I know, who I'm connected to. Paul says, no, wisdom is measured by how you live. If you were truly wise, these issues never would have gotten to court. True wisdom, if they possessed it, would lead them to arbitrate all these matters among themselves and deal with them redemptively so that Paul didn't have to write about this. Paul calls them to embrace this wisdom and to keep the minor issues that are causing them to fray and fracture, deal with them redemptively and don't lay them before outsiders. Tom Schreiner, New Testament professor, says, The Corinthians, as we know from chapters 1 through 4, were proud of their wisdom. But if they were so wise, Paul asks, how can it be the case that there is not a single wise person in the church who's able to solve the legal cases that have arisen? Apparently, the church is entirely bereft of wisdom since it needs to appeal to unbelievers to resolve disputes arising among fellow believers. You see how ridiculous that is? But see, that wasn't their, that wasn't their focus. They were concerned about my vindication, not God's reputation. And that's why Paul calls them back and say, think about how, how you're living, what that's saying to an unbelieving world. Thirdly, which matters more, winning a fight or being like Christ? Winning a fight or being like Christ? Why do people engage in lawsuits? Why do people pick lawyers? To win, right? We don't go to court to lose. We go to court to win. We want to be vindicated. We want to have our rights asserted. But Paul says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. What's he mean by that? Well, in no small way, he says that even by going to secular courts, by even allowing these grievances to reach that point and to escalate to that level, no matter what happens in the judge's decision, you both lost. You both lost. They are already defeated. The believers were looking for a victory in court, and Paul says them that the very presence of lawsuits signals a stunning defeat in the eyes of the judge of all the earth. Their desire to win on the part of the Corinthians revealed that for them, it was far more important for them to get a judgment in an earthly court than the judgment in a heavenly one. They wanted to fight and win more than please Christ and lose. He also makes the point that they themselves are behaving hypocritically by doing so. He says in verse 8, But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. They claim to have been defrauded. That's why they're going to court. And by doing that, they're defrauding. That's, what, that's his logic. He says, you've been wronged. And by going to court this way, you're wronging them. You're wronging just as you've been wronged. You're not responding to a wrong with a right. You're responding to a wrong with a wrong. By taking their fellow believers to court, 
they claim they have been wronged, so they take it up in a secular court, but by doing so, they are doing to others what has been done to them. Just as other believers wronged and defrauding them, they're using that as a license to wrong and defraud others. Paul clearly sees it as both wrong and a form of defrauding one another when they attempt to solve their petty grievances in the courts rather than in the church. And this is the very kind of hypocrisy that Paul condemns when he writes to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you will judge those, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? What ought they to do instead? Paul tells him, verse 7, why not rather suffer wrong? What is the big deal about being wronged as a Christian? Why not be defrauded? Take the loss. Take the hit. You're going to rule the world. Judge angels one day. They don't like me. They took 50 bucks. I'm the heir of all things. It doesn't matter. See, what often motivates this kind of quarreling is not justice or retaliation. It's not humility. It's one-upsmanship. I got to get it. I got to get my peace. It's an effort to humiliate another and prove yourself to be superior in one way. And what does that say about your grasp of the gospel? That you need to feel superior to other people. You haven't gotten Christianity 101 yet. Christianity 101 says you are as wicked as everybody else. Not in terms of gradations of sin. I'm talking about a need for a redeemer. Ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the gospel frees you from ever having to get in that performance mentality of thinking, well, am I better than them? Are they better than me? The gospel eliminates that mindset altogether. That's unsanctified thinking that needs to be washed in the blood of Christ so that you can get free from the need for approval from people. And you can live in the confidence that Christ has intended to give you. What that kind of behavior reveals is often that we're trusting more in our rightness than Christ's righteousness. And that is because we often care more about what people think of us than what Christ thinks of us. And we should care more about what Christ thinks of us because a believer who takes a fellow believer to court always loses the case in God's sight. He's already suffered a spiritual defeat no matter the outcome because contrary to the world's standards, it's better to be sued and lose than sue and win in this case. Spiritually, it's impossible for a Christian to sue and win in this case. Again, not talking about legitimate issues. Spiritually, it's impossible for a Christian to sue and win. So when we are deprived wrongfully, we are to cast ourselves on the care of God who's able to work that for our good and his glory and take the hit, be defrauded, suffer wrong for the sake of the gospel and the unity of the church. Because, brothers and sisters, it's better to be like Jesus than to win. That is, that's what it means to win. We need to redefine what it means to win. What it means to win is you're like Jesus. The person who's like Jesus the most wins. We claim to follow Christ, but which way did he go, dear ones? He went the way of complete defrauding, and self-giving. Should an unbelieving world not see us laying our lives down for others and said as Christ loved us and laid down his life for us? Should they not see us absorbing wrongs against us as Christ did for us? 
Should they not see us behaving meekly like a lamb before its shearers is silent, rather than yelling and arguing about how our rights aren't being respected? What needs to change in your heart in order for you to be more content to be wrongfully treated? That'd be good to take before the Lord this week. Consider Jesus' admonition in Matthew 5, 38 to 42. Turn the other cheek. Now, in that text, our Lord is talking about not repaying verbal insults in kind. When we face trivial insults, we should surrender our right to retaliation and endure being wronged. When others wrong or defraud us in the church, our default inclination should be to suffer the wrong without seeking redress from the civil authorities except in particularly serious circumstances. And in doing this, we imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 13.5, love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued himself, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Romans 12.17-21, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, this is Paul thinking, what would be honorable in the sight of all men living peacefully among yourselves? Nobody can call into question that. If you're living in harmony, nobody's going to say, well, what's going on there? It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If he has a grievance against you, take him to court. No, that's not in the verse, is it? Yeah, I didn't see that either. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Above all, we should want to represent Jesus well to the world that is watching us, showing a non-Christian public a Christian demonstration of selfless love and humility. We cannot show that if we're squabbling over small matters because what will be shown to the world through that behavior to the world is that the source of our squabble matters way more to us than Christ ever did. Tom Schreiner says, far better to follow the way of Jesus and to surrender one's rights for the sake of other believers for than for other believers. For unbelievers will see the truth of the gospel when believers love one another and engaging in litigation against one another blatantly contradicts this call to sacrificial love. Fourthly and finally, which matters more, other sin against me or my sin against God? other sin against me or my sin against God. Paul begins verses 9 and 10 by reminding the Corinthians that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists various behaviors which constitute unrighteousness. Now he's indicating by their behavior, which would be holding petty grudges and seeking to extract remuneration from worldly justice, is just another kind of unrighteous behavior alongside things like homosexuality and adultery that keep people out of heaven. Do you put relational sins like bitterness and grudge holding and malice and envy and slander and greed and reviling and swindling into the category of unrighteous acts that if they are characteristic of your life will keep you out of heaven? Paul does. Yeah, you haven't committed adultery, but you hold grievances. Yeah, you haven't you're not a, you don't practice homosexuality, but you revile others and you swindle to get what you can out of others. Same stuff. I mean, not the same category of sin, but same unrighteousness that Paul is talking about here. I mean, are those small sins in your eyes? Are these small sins to Paul? 
Are they small sins to God? No, they're not small sins. He compares them to things like theft and idolatry and drunkenness. And if you believe they're small sins, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit would like a word with you. Paul teaches here that underneath the sins of grievances and these trivial cases and these disputes is something else at work. And what is it? What's that more insidious evil that is giving birth to these outward sins? Notice what Paul says in the, right in the middle of verse 10. Nor thieves, nor the greedy. There it is. That's what's driving this ultimately. Greed. Is this not the motive that would lead someone to bring a legal case against another? They're trying to get something from someone else. That's greed when it's done unrighteously. That's greed. As John MacArthur sadly reflects, believers who go to court with believers are more concerned with revenge or gain than with the unity of the church and the glory of Jesus Christ. James 4 tells us that there is way more under the hood that's revealed by a Christian's temptation to quarrel and fight with other believers, and what is under the hood is often greed. Notice what James says in James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have. There it is, greed. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. There's greed. So you fight and quarrel. See, that's what's behind the quarrelings and the fights. The Corinthians are taking each other to civil court. What's civil court for? Civil court is for the purpose of resolving private disputes over money and possessions. Usually, when one person sues another in a civil case, he or she wants the court to require the person to give the plaintiff money or property as payment. So at the bottom of these cases, because Paul sees them as unrighteous and unjust, is greed. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that greed and the love of money will keep you out of heaven. Jesus says it. Paul says it. You can't serve two masters. And brothers and sisters, Paul is clear that it's serious. And so is the rest of the Bible. Greed is a sign that we've renounced the Lord. Psalm 10.3, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Greed manifests that we don't trust the Lord. Psalm 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife. See, that's what's stirring up this strife, greed. But the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. See, they're not trusting in the Lord, trusting in the judges or whatever. Greed is a characteristic of a Pharisee. Matthew 23, 35, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, full of greed, self-indulgence. Greed is a characteristic of a false teacher, 2 Peter 2.3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. 2 Peter 2.14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Greed is a mark of an unbeliever, as we've seen here in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Not at all meaning the sexual immorality of this world, Paul says, or the greedy. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of greed. So why does this kind of grievance-bearing, dispute-engaging, trivial cases-pursuing behavior cause someone to not inherit the kingdom? It's because it reveals a heart of greed. And a persistently unrepentant, greedy heart reveals that a person can no longer claim to be in the category of a Christian. Rather, their character is more aligned with those who renounce the Lord, fail to trust the Lord, 
and their conduct is more aligned with Pharisees and false teachers and unbelievers, I think that would indicate that they're not a Christian. Again, if they behave in this way unrepentantly, persistently, perpetually, without giving mind to the Lord or dealing with it before him. So to be clear, Paul does not say that a true Christian will never commit this sin, right? He treats them as Christians here, right? He says, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. You're not like this. Don't behave this way. This isn't who you are anymore. But if they don't listen and they dismiss those things, he comes back and says, but remember, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So take my word seriously. You're secure, Christian. But you need to deal with the things in your heart that give rise to things like this. So, of course, we as Christians, we do commit sin daily. We can get drunk. We can steal. We can be greedy. But the difference is that believers, while they can and do commit grievous sins, they don't practice those things. It's one thing, for instance, to steal something, feel sorry for it, turn to Christ for forgiveness, endeavor thereafter to walk in new obedience, make restitution as needed. It's another to steal regularly, not see a problem with it, and make no effort to ever turn away from it. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's one, one thing to have done this and uh, feel this grievance and this relational strife and take it out on a believer and take him to an unbelieving court and try to get a settlement. And it's another thing for Paul to write this and then read this and say, Oh, Lord, I've sinned against you. And I've sinned against my brother. And I need to ask your forgiveness. And I need to seek the Lord's forgiveness. And I'm done with this kind of behavior. That's another thing altogether. And that's what Paul's hoping would happen as he addresses them in this letter. So let me conclude with this gospel reminder and hope, and then we'll wrap up. While Christians might commit any number of transgressions that are listed here in verses 9 and 10, these things, brothers and sisters, are not who you are anymore. Such were some of you. Were. Past tense. Old life. Not your identity. Not characteristic of who you are in Christ. We have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whom the Spirit of God has converted do not embrace homosexuality, theft, greed, or any other sin and live in them, but we reject them, we put them to death, we fight against those sinful thoughts and desires and attractions, and we strive to grow in Christ-likeness. So we need to see relational strife on the same playing field as other forms of immorality that if they're not repented of, send us to hell. And that is a key factor in helping us fight against this tendency in our lives. We must see that our sin against God is a much, much bigger deal than other people's sins against us. Because the way we respond to other people's sin against us has eternal consequences attached to it. It's always a test. It's always a trial. How will we respond? Will we respond godly? Or we will say, well, they did evil to me. The Bible says I can do evil to them. No, that's the, that's the enemy whispering that. The lawsuits that were plaguing the Corinthian church are not minor matters, even if the content of them was. For if the Corinthians continue to give themselves over to this behavior, Paul makes it clear, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let me conclude, conclude with these questions. Brothers and sisters, listen to your soul. Do you find yourself feeling sharply the wrongs that have been done against you? Are they a bigger deal to you than your own sin? 
Which list in your mind is longer? Other people's sin against you or your sin against God? Be honest. Get out a piece of paper this afternoon and make a list. Which is easier to write? Do you have 20-20 vision when it comes to the ways that others have wronged you while your sins against Christ are relegated to the fuzzy and fuzzy generalities? Just, they're just fuzzy. They're foggy. I can't even remember them. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer where we ask God to forgive us as we have forgiven others? If God were to forgive you in a way commensurate with your forgiveness of others, how would the scales tip in the judgment? See, our sins against him are always serious, but the Lord does not take advantage of us and his right to destroy us every time we sin. He endures the wrong. He's defrauded by us, and he willingly does it because he loves us from his very heart. The Lord takes it and takes it and takes it and never once thinks, man, I can't wait to get that guy, that girl in the judgment. I can't wait to just bring them out so I can get everything out of them that I want. No, he says, I've done it. I've chosen to bear it. I love you. I will show you grace to your dying day. And if the Lord Jesus does that with us daily, surely we can endure the minor, minor offenses others commit against us, right? The gospel has changed us, brothers and sisters. We are washed. We are sanctified. We are justified. We are not who we once were. God treats us with immeasurable and immaculate grace. Let's live like it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the way that you relate to us as your children. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are persistent in your ability to show patience and long-suffering with us in our sin. You are not hair-triggered by us. And Lord, we want to be more like you with each other. We want to love each other in ways that are patient and persistent and for the long haul as an imperfect family destined for perfection and glory. So Lord, in, in our own church family, help us to bear with one another well. Help us to put up with one another well, as your word says. Help us to bear our grievances. Help us to deal with them redemptively by speaking to each other if necessary. And if it's not necessary, let's just cover it in love because love covers a multitude of sins. And Lord, um, help us to relate redemptively to one another based on how you redemptively relate to us. Help us to extend the same grace to each other horizontally that you have extended to us and continue to extend to us vertically every single moment of our lives. And we ask all this for your glory, for our good, for the witness of the church, for the witness of our own church community and our own community, and for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.